But this idea of being born, sure, we all participated in our births, <laughs> but we right. did nothing to, to further it. We, we literally offered nothing to the process. Hey, hey, welcome to Live Like It's True, the podcast devoted to helping you know the story, share the story, and live the story. And of course, the story I'm referring to is the true story the Bible tells. I'm your host, Shannon Popkin, and I'm so glad you're here. Have you been born again? Do you know what that metaphor means and why Jesus used it to confront a Bible teacher named Nicodemus? I'm guessing you've heard of John 3.16, but do you know the story that it's part of? In season one, my guests and I are looking at some of our favorite jaw-dropping, astonishing true stories of Jesus. And today, my guest Aaron Brewster and I will be discussing the true story of Nicodemus from John chapter 3, verses 1 through 21. A.M. Brewster is a biblical counselor. He's a preacher and a speaker. He speaks at parenting conferences, and he's the host of a parenting podcast called Truth Love Parent. In addition, as you're going to find out today, Aaron has spent some time on stage portraying Jesus in a theatrical production. I think you're going to enjoy hearing about that. So let's jump into our conversation with A.M. Brewster. Erin, it's so great to have you with us here at Live Like It's True. You know, you are the first man on the show. You know, being the first man is dangerous um, <laughs> because Adam was the first man. Oh, and dear. He totally <laughs> bombed that. So hopefully I'll do better with this than he did with the whole Apple thing. Hopefully. Well, you know, the woman the woman went first. So, you know, we're <laughs> even, I guess. Right? Um, so you know, I got to first meet you when I was being interviewed on Truth Love Parent podcast. So tell us just real briefly what you do there. Well, yeah. So you came on because you wrote this this great uh, book, you know, if you remember, uh, called Control Girl. <laughs> and that book was passed on to me and I absolutely fell in love with it. I had to have a conversation with you. So I got you onto my show. And my show, Truth Love Parent, really is... Uh, it's, it's part of a larger ministry. We have a biblical counseling ministry. Uh, we equip teachers, pastors, anyone who works with families, like broken families, at-risk uh, kid situations, trauma. And we uh, then we also create biblical parenting resources so people can be the parent God called and created them to be. Uh, when I learned that you were the director of a boy's home <laughs> before doing this ministry, I was like, oh man, I mean, he's got to know some stuff. <laughs> Had parent. some interesting experiences. There I can put it go. that way for sure. Yes. Yeah. And helping me parent my teens, my boys. And so I've just learned so much from you and appreciate it so much. And then as you know, I was announcing this new podcast, you wrote back and said, you have had experience on a stage with drama and playing Jesus. Like, wow. So tell us about that. Where did you perform or what were you part of? Well, yeah. So I'll back it up a little bit. Um, so this whole idea of living like it's true, getting into God's word and saying, hey, this is true. Not only did these accounts actually happen, uh, but these are real expectations God has for us. These are real commands. Like, what if we actually live like everything we see in the scriptures is, is and was true? So if we rewind back to 2007, I was uh, working in a, a Christian school as part of a, a church. It was a larger ministry. And uh, we decided that we wanted to put on a passion play. And 
I knew who the director was going to be and we were talking and I had done some acting work uh, with her and other venues. My wife and I both um, met on stage acting and all that kind of stuff. So we, oh, we've been doing that for a long time. I didn't know that. <laughs> um, but uh, we've done stuff online and stage, stage work. We love that. And so we were working with this community theater at the time and the director of this uh, Overshadowed Theatrical Productions, uh, which is a Christian community theater, was going to be directing our passion play. And I went to her and I was joking and I said, uh, I feel really bad uh, for the poor guy that you're going to choose to play Jesus because that's <laughs> like impossible. Like <laughs> good luck finding someone to do that. <laughs> and it was probably less than a month later, maybe three weeks later, she came to me and she said, hey, Aaron, I have a question for you. What would you think of playing Jesus? And it hit me like a ton of break. I went home and I told my wife and my wife's immediate response was, I'd say, no, don't do it. <laughs> and um, at the time I was teaching in the Christian school and I, we were on a lunch break one time and I was sitting with two ladies and they were conjecturing as to who would be playing Christ. And uh, the one lady, the one lady says, well, whoever they are, they're going to do it wrong. <laughs> and I said, Oh, I'm, I, I chimed down. I was like, well, why is that? And she's like, well, I've been reading the Bible. I've been a Christian for decades. And she was old enough to be my mother. She said, I've been reading the Bible for decades. I know you know, and she was being facetious, but I know what Jesus looks like. I know what he sounds like. I know why, you know, I, I know all of that. I've been interacting with him for all these decades and whoever it is just isn't going to get it right. You know, in, in her estimation, at what point the other woman turned to me and she says, Aaron, aren't you going to be playing Jesus? And I'm like, really? <laughs> Come on. So, and it ended up being, it's what I call the impossible role. I'm never going to get Jesus right doesn't matter how hard I try. doesn't matter how much I study. I'm not God. I am a finite human being. He was 100% man, 100% God. It's the impossible role. You go into it knowing you're going to fail, right? Mm -hmm. Huge responsibility. And so I spent a lot of time, uh, as you can imagine, studying the gospels. But I approached them in a very different way than I used to. It was, why did Jesus weep? I know that he wept, but why? Mm -hmm. um, not just that he said what he said, but how did he say it? When he said to the woman caught in adultery, uh, go and sin no more. How did he say that? What was his tone of voice? What was his facial expression? So, man, it was, I, I, I was getting counsel from pastors. I was, I was studying the scriptures to try to be as faithful to who he was. But a huge honor of portraying him on stage uh, over the course of seven years. And um, I did so in, in three different productions. Wow. Um, so it was, uh, it, was pretty, it was pretty intense, pretty crazy. But having spent that much time focusing on those portions of his life, most of which were actually from John, um, so many questions that I had to ask of myself to mm -hmm. understand these passages. To have to be able to say, it is my responsibility to as faithfully as possible mm -hmm. talk like Christ, move like Christ be motivated the way Christ was motivated, right? Well, isn't that what being a Christian is? Yeah. Are we supposed to talk like Christ? Yeah. Are we supposed to be motivated to do the things he would do for the reasons he would do them? Mm -hmm. So I think that experience, it's something that all of us Christians, when we approach the scriptures, we need to be asking those questions. If I'm supposed to talk like Jesus, I need to figure out how he talked. So it was an amazing experience. I thank God I, I would do it again. I would still do it with as much trepidation as I did before. Mm -hmm. But for me personally, uh, the experience was just, uh, there's just nothing to compare.
That's amazing. Yeah. And as you were talking, I was thinking about just how important these interactions, the actual people who got to interact with Jesus, how Mm. important these were and how, what an extraordinary experience it was to talk with Jesus and to interact with him. So did you ever portray Jesus talking with Nicodemus? Because that's the story that we're going to talk about from John three. Did you ever play that role or that scene? Yep. Yep. In fact, I had over those seven years, I had the opportunity to play Jesus opposite of uh, two different gentlemen who who portrayed Nicodemus. Um, It was different interacting with each of those guys at the different times. And it pushed me to have to consider more things. Like it wasn't just good enough for me to see it from Jesus's eyes. I had to see it from Nicodemus's eyes too. So yeah, it was, it was fun. It was always a great scene because just the two of us on stage. Right. Yeah. And so set the scene for us. Did it was at night? So Mm -hmm. did they have the the lights dimmed or how did they, how did they set the scene? Oh yeah. And it was always the beautiful lighting, light enough for everyone to see, but also for everyone to recognize that it was nighttime. Uh And uh, it's, it was difficult to like, when the lights come up, what is Jesus doing? Everything about that? Like, what was he doing right before Nicodemus bumped into him? Mm. Um, What do you assume he was doing? Right. I'm asking you, what do you think? What was Jesus doing right before Nicodemus walked up? I don't know. I mean, I always pictured him in his home or wherever he was staying and then Nicodemus knocking on the door and him walking out to have a conversation in the street or something. Is that... That may have been what happened. I don't okay. know. We, yeah. we have no clue. I, on the other hand, know that oftentimes, you know, from the scriptures, we see that oftentimes he went out at night to be by himself and to pray. Oh, yeah. I okay. kind of saw it as being one of those things where maybe he was out in his favorite spot, or one of his favorite spots praying and Nicodemus happened upon him there or went looking for him. So Aaron, I love that you kind of set us up to read the story. We've got the scene in our mind. It's dark and Nicodemus is coming to Jesus. And let's just suppose Jesus has sought the father in solitude in prayer. And so let's just have that picture in mind. And, and we'll kind of chunk this passage up and talk about it in little pieces. So could you just start, though, by reading verses one through two? Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one else can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And of course, Nicodemus, you know, walks up and he he starts with his opening line, uh, which really isn't a question. So much as he just comes up to makes a statement, which is an interesting way to approach. Like, right. <laughs> like you just walk up to somebody and say, Rabbi, we mm-hmm. know you've come from God because of you know, all the things that you're doing. That is just kind of funny that, that he approached it that way. But one of the things I found in my, in my research, we, to think that we have the entire conversation is, is probably a little, a little foolish. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, we, we don't. Because um, some people say too, like Jesus's answer or how he replied to that, that statement is kind of strange. Like some people... Uh, have even thought, you know, Jesus was being kind of curt and like, like there was no even like uh, some casual, you know, kind interactions, but that that's not the case that they're likely, you know, uh, Jesus would have said something appropriate uh, saying, saying hi to him, a greeting mm-hmm. of some sort. Yeah. So we have to recognize that staging this as it's written required a little bit of, you know, mental gymnastics sure. to make mm-hmm. it really appear natural Natural. and and not awkward 
right? Yeah, that is so, that's such a great point because this is John. He wasn't writing a play. He was writing for readers who would approach, you know, the text and John was just giving us what he thought was important for us to know, you know, the highlights of the highlights of the conversation and say, hi, how are you? How are you? No, (laughs) John's not going to, John's not going to waste his time on that. So like you said, he's not coming with a question. We would expect him coming with a question. I think eventually Nicodemus did have a question, um, but whatever, even if he did ask it, it, it wasn't important to the narrative for us. Opening with rabbi was a big deal. I mean, later on in the passage, we're going to see that Jesus refers to him as the teacher of Israel, mm-hmm. not a teacher, but the teacher. We know that wow. Nicodemus was part of the Sanhedrin, a group of 70 men who was like the Supreme Court of uh, of the Jews. And so for him to enter the situation as the teacher, the rabbi, uh, someone of Nicodemus's stature and to call Jesus rabbi, that was a very big deal. Mm-hmm. However, um, a student takes the role of a question asker. Mm-hmm. So by opening with this statement and not necessarily having gotten to his question, and again, maybe he did, maybe he did come humbly asking questions, but this statement alone um, is, it was more of a statement, more from the teacher perspective. Got it. Okay. So with only this statement in mind, I think it's an interesting mix. Yeah. Um, but let's give Nicodemus the benefit of the doubt that he was setting up for a question. Sure. Um, and maybe he even asked that question. So I think, yeah, he did come to Jesus with a great level of humility. Um, some people like to say, because he came at night, you know, there was a little bit of pride and arrogance. He didn't want to be seen by other people and whatever else. And I don't really know that we can judge him too harshly for that. He came at night. Um, maybe that's what he was doing. Maybe he was hiding. He was a little embarrassed to be seeking out this Jesus. Maybe that's just when they happened to meet. I don't yeah, know, sure. but that's just, I think giving him the benefit of the doubt, there's a lot of humility here. Yeah. I love that. Okay. So let's go on. Give us uh, verses three through, is it eight? Yeah. Great. Well, Jesus answered and said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he's old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? And Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who was born of the spirit. So these are some astonishing things that Jesus Mm -hmm. is saying. We're going to see Nicodemus respond in astonishment, but this original audience reading what John has written here, what would they have found astonishing in what Jesus is saying here? Yeah, this was really powerful because we refer, you know, as Christians in the uh, in 2021, right? We refer to being born again all the time. It's 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 old hat to us in a way that terminology. Mm-hmm. But to these people, it was confusing as all get out. It, it, it literally made no sense. And the reality is, is that the the picture of being born again uh, really is just that. Jesus didn't intend uh, it to be a scientifically accurate thing. He was using it as, as a metaphor and it's a beautiful metaphor for so many reasons. So yeah, Nicodemus was, it is completely appropriate for him to have asked the question he asked. It's like, well, I, I don't understand, like go back into my mother's womb and come out again. Like that was that literal. And, and keep in mind, this is probably one of these most educated people in Israel, but his response helps us to see that this was, this concept was completely unheard of. 
for sure. Yeah. So why did Jesus use metaphor? Why, why didn't he just talk in more plain language? Uh, so really what he's doing is he's giving a deeper, helping us to really appreciate what it means to be saved. To say you need to be saved, um, well, you can save yourself. I can, I, I'm, a, I'm a, uh, an amateur magician and I've, I've been tied up and I've been shackled and I've been able to save myself. I've been able to pull myself up by the bootstraps and save myself from some financial difficulties and things like that. So it's very easy for us to see, to misunderstand this concept of salvation if it's just presented that you need to be saved, right? But this idea of being born, sure, we all participated in our births, <laughs> but we right. did nothing to, to further it. Our mothers and their doctors or midwives were the only people who guaranteed that we came out, however we came out, that we came out. Mm-hmm. We, we literally offered nothing to the process um, besides being the thing that needed to be ejected, right? So <laughs> the reality is... Um, I mean, I'm sitting here laughing a little bit in my head because the first guy that comes on talking about stuff that all the women re- understand, but, but what does he know? I know like, that's my point. I, I, I have, I have had zero interaction with this concept, but I have done nothing to birth a person, even my own birth. So the reality here is that this is the perfect metaphor. We bring nothing to our salvation. Um, when we are born, um, it is a work that is done on us and, and in us and through us and not, no work of our own, lest any man should boast. Yeah, that's so good. And I love the contrast of being able to save ourselves and just the helpless baby because mm-hmm. the baby's alive, but it's not, you know, cannot, it's helpless to produce its birth. Right. So there, there's this coming to life thing. Mm-hmm. My son worked as a, um, at a camp this summer as a lifeguard for the first time. And they would do these swim tests. And there was a little boy who was actively drowning. Like they tell Mm. you in lifeguard training, what active drowning looks like. It's like, you're going under the water, you're struggling, your head is coming up and maybe you're not saying anything. Maybe you're not even flailing around. And so my son went to give him the ring, the buoy Mm -hmm. and the boy pushed it away. And he said, no, no, I can do it. (laughs) I can do it. Mm. And and he kept handing him the buoy like, no, no, I can do it. The boy said, no, I want to pass. I want to pass the swim test. And my Uh. son said, you already failed. Take this buoy. And he would not do it. He was so determined. And so my son had to come and come from behind. Like they're taught with lifeguard training. Like, and it's just, it's, that's how ridiculous it is for us too. We cannot save ourselves. There is so much Mm -hmm. struggle and trying like, no, I want to do it. I want to do it. We're like a toddler, like me self, I do it, you know, (laughs) and we want to prove that we can save ourselves and we just can't. And we don't ever hear anybody saying like, no, I want to make myself be born. We wish as pregnant women that our babies would say, I want to make myself be born. So anything, any rebirth or new birth that comes, this is the work of the spirit. And I love just that, Mm. how, how dependent we are. The reality is the spiritual life. We are always in a state of need. Mm. We're always infants in a way because this situations that I'm going, I'm, I'm a born again believer, but the situation I'm going through, I can't do it on my own. I would be a fool to say, you know, push away the buoys that God's throwing out to me and saying, I can do this on my, I'm mature enough. I'm, I'm grown up enough, God, I can do this. So yeah, do everything you said, amen and amen. But we, sometimes I think in our foolishness as born again, believers, um, even recognizing that we can never save ourselves for some reason, we think that we can sanctify ourselves. 
We think that we can get through the rest of life without God or this element without God and utter foolishness. We're still infants in so many ways, completely dependent upon him. And we need to, you need to have that same attitude through it all. Hey, I hope you're enjoying this conversation with Aaron Brewster, and we're going to jump back into that conversation in just a moment. But here at the mid-roll, I love for us to take a little break and talk about storytelling, about sharing these true stories of Jesus that we find in the Bible. Now, if you heard my trailer episode for Live Like It's True, you heard me talk about how we often like to distill the gospel down into like a snack-sized, tidy little package that we can give away to somebody. And if you've ever been trained to do this or you've given away a tract, I'll bet it included John 3.16 because John 3.16 offers one of the most succinct gospel presentations. It says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish. It's a tidy little package that we can give away. I don't in any way want to minimize doing so. But here's the thing. I believe that our Bible is packaged up in stories because stories are easy to hold on to. Now, I have had John 3.16 memorized since I was a little girl, but you know what I didn't realize? I didn't know that it was a direct quote from Jesus. I mean, I don't know how I missed that, but I had kind of plucked that verse out of its context. I hadn't really thought much about the story that it was part of, and somehow I missed the fact that these words were on the lips of Jesus. And doesn't that give it more significance? If you open your Bible to John 3.16, you will see that there are quotes, quotation marks around that verse. It's the words that Jesus spoke to Nicodemus. And add to that, Jesus is sharing these words with a very religious man. It's somebody Jesus will call the teacher of Israel. So here's where this might be helpful. Do you know anybody who does good things and yet is far from God? What if you told her this story? What if you said, hey, you know that verse, John 3.16, I'm sure you know it, you know, you're a religious person, but do you know the story around the verse? When you share a story from the Bible, it doesn't feel like you're sharing doctrine, but you are. It's like you're opening your little velvet pouch of gems. The story is what holds all the gems together, and you're spreading them out. You're spreading out the truth and inviting your friend or your loved one to treasure them up and take them home. So here's my challenge. After you listen through to the end of the podcast, open your Bible and spend some time in John chapter 3 so that you learn this story, so that you're able to retell it and you're able to share it with somebody else. And then can I give you an assignment? Would you be willing to find one person to share the story with this week? Maybe a coworker or one of your kids or your spouse or your mom. It doesn't have to be a religious person. It can be somebody who really doesn't like religious people. And in that case, you can say, yeah, you know, Jesus had a way of calling religious people to humble themselves. As I'm recording this, it's right before Thanksgiving. So maybe you'll have some time with a loved one. Maybe you'll have an opportunity to share this story. If you do, would you let me know? I'd love to hear how it goes. 
I'd also love to hear what you think of Truth Love Parent, Aaron Brewster's parenting podcast. It has been such a gold mine for me, and I know you're going to love it. We've got a link in the show notes for the podcast and some of the other resources we've mentioned here in this episode. We've also got a link for your free Bible readings and discussion guide for season one of Live Like It's True. All right. I hope you're enjoying this conversation with Aaron, especially considering what it was like to set up this conversation from the stage and for him to portray Jesus in that theatrical production. So we're going to jump back into the conversation and talk about what did Jesus mean when he told Nicodemus he must be born again. So what does it mean to be born again? We're born of the flesh, right? If you're born of the flesh, you're human, you're physical. But if you want to be spiritually born again, you need to be born of the spirit or spiritually born for the first time, I should say. And he says, he says, don't be amazed that I said you need to be born again. Now, this is actually was a really difficult part for me to communicate this is in a way that made sense because Jesus is saying, don't be amazed that I said you must be born again. Let me explain why you shouldn't be amazed. And then he says this thing about the wind blowing where it goes and you, you feel it, you hear it, but you don't know where it's coming from. You don't know where it's going. <laughs> so is everyone who's born of the spirit. Well, in a way I have to just a pure humanity, flesh speaking here. The first time I read through that and I'm thinking through, how would I say this in a way that would make sense? I'm like, this doesn't make sense. Like, that's not a good answer. <laughs> like if I were Nicodemus and he said that, I'm like, oh, thanks. Not really. That didn't clear anything up at all. <laughs> yeah. um, and the idea I think that Christ was really pointing at is, uh, and the word here for wind was the word used for spirits. In fact, it's, uh, it is the identical word. So literally, Jesus just said, that which is born of wind is wind. The wind blows where it wishes. The reality that Jesus is communicating is that we recognize that the spirit is a thing. It's a very real thing. I think that one of the the most ridiculous things that atheists try to do is argue that there is is not an immaterial part of us. Mm -hmm. Um, Secular psychologists and psychiatrists who come at man's problems from a strictly biological perspective are denying everything they know, deep down inside, they know to be true. Because we recognize the fact that there is an immaterial part of us. But what is that immaterial part? Well, we can't see it. We can't even really feel it. We know it's there. And Jesus is saying, that's the part of you that needs to be born. No, I'm not telling you that don't be amazed when I said you need to be born again. No, I'm not talking about you physically going back into your mother's womb. Just remove that from your idea. We're talking about something different. We're talking about a spiritual birth and you recognize that the spirit exists. You know that the spirit is a thing. That's what we're talking about when we talk about the spiritual birth, Nicodemus, this idea. And I think that was the key thing that was being communicated here. That's so good. And we passed the the part about entering the kingdom of God. Mm. You know, if we're not born again, if we're not born of the spirit, mm-hmm. we can't enter this kingdom. Mm. I mean, for Nicodemus, like that was his, as I understand it, the Pharisees thought that they could usher in this kingdom of God, this Messiah. And, and their, their whole goal was like the kingdom prep team. Like we've got to get yes. everybody doing everything yeah. perfect. Right. And the kingdom the launch, launch team. Yeah. The launch team for <laughs> the, the kingdom. Yeah. And so, you know, that was his purpose and his role. And then wait, this is just very reorienting. You know, yeah. they, they were picturing a, a kingdom. Jesus's first coming. He did not 
sit on a throne and rule his people, his second coming, he will. And mm-hmm. so we don't want to, we don't want to in any way divorce ourselves from those original ideas that the Pharisees had with this coming kingdom and this king who will reign. Jesus was all of those things, is all of those things. And yet it, he's just talking in completely different terms mm-hmm. that, so like, is this a tangible kingdom? And what does it have to do with our intangible selves, <laughs> our spiritual yeah. selves? Any thoughts on that, Aaron? So I think you're right. Nicodemus had a very clear picture in his mind of what the kingdom was. And for Jesus to say, like, because he's already said it twice now, for him to say, unless this happens, and Nicodemus understood that that hadn't happened to him, you will not enter the kingdom of God. You won't even see the kingdom of God. That was a massive affront to these guys who, like you said, saw themselves as the launch team. Yes, the Messiah is going to be necessary in part, but until he comes, we're going to do our part to, to make the kingdom happen. So for Jesus to say to him, um, you can't even see the kingdom, that would have been a massively offensive thing. And by the way, to be offended is a personal choice. Mm-hmm. Truth can wound, truth can hurt, truth, but truth does so in a loving way that exposes the reality of who we are because it has an answer for it. To say to a person, you have cancer is not a hateful thing. It's a loving thing. And yet so often we hate to be told that we're sinners because we're prideful and arrogant. Like that's offensive. No, it's not offensive. It's actually loving. If you are in sin, for someone to say you're sinning is a beautiful thing. And this is, this is not something offensive that Jesus is saying. He loves Nicodemus. He wants Nicodemus to be in the kingdom. And by God's grace alone, Nicodemus is in the kingdom of God today. Mm-hmm. That's a beautiful thing. So for him to say this was wonderful. Nicodemus needed to see this. Nicodemus needed to understand that nothing Nicodemus was ever going to do was going to allow him to see the kingdom. Religion is impotent. Religion from a man-made perspective is impotent to ever truly save us. And it goes again to the picture of being born again. Mm-hmm. But the, 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 to the point, yes, the kingdom has a dual aspect. There is a spiritual aspect to the kingdom and there's a physical aspect to the kingdom. The key thing is this, we will never be able to appreciate the physical aspect of the kingdom unless we first have experienced the spiritual aspect of the kingdom. And that's the necessary thing that is required to be born again is to be entered into the spiritual kingdom so that one day we can we can enjoy and forever love the physical kingdom. But, you know, as you're talking, it just becomes clear. Like it makes sense that Jesus would talk in these metaphors because Mm -hmm. it's not something physical that we can experience. It is a spiritual birth. And so to try and put it into physical terms um, and and I've said before on this podcast, like the the language that the the Jews were accustomed to, it, it was a metaphorical language. There were fewer words. They used a lot of metaphors and a lot of concrete imagery to express spiritual matters. And so yeah. it just is the you know the Jews thought of themselves as already this metaphor of being born. They thought they were born into this kingdom. Like they are they're sons thought, of Abraham, right? Yeah, they yeah. thought the birth had already taken it, but it's spiritual. And so there is a mystery the wind blowing we there's not a formula um you know i mean we can know how to shepherd people toward this not being offended by jesus and this response um of of birth but we can't produce it we can't produce it in yeah. our kids we can't produce it in ourselves uh, you mentioned something that's really powerful as a biblical counselor one of the first things i tried to establish with my counselors is whether or not they truly have a relationship with god uh, and when I say relationship with God, that they're born again, they're Christians. Right. And in trying to hear, listening to people's testimonies, I'll tell you how often I hear people say, well, I've always been a Christian. You know, this idea that they're, they're standing with God is based on the fact that they're born into a church going family mm-hmm. or their parents were Christians. 
And I just want to say what he said, what you were just talking about, what he said to Nicodemus is true for us. It doesn't matter that you were born into the family of the Jews, God chosen people, a son of Abraham. That doesn't mean you were spiritually born again. That's the key. Your physical birth, it doesn't matter who your parents were. That was a physical birth. You were born of flesh. And now you need to be born of the spirit. It's a secondary thing. It's a, it's a second birth. And that's so important because again, I encounter a lot of people who are very confused about this, thinking that just because they were born into a certain type of a family that they automatically have a relationship with God. Mm. I was just at a retreat speaking and I got to talk with a woman and, you know, something she had said earlier just kind of made me think, I don't think she's had this rebirth because she's, she's speaking of it as if, well, I hope, but not, Mm. I know, you know, I hope. And I just talked to her about, well, do you know, you can know, you know, we talked about just praying right then and there to God and having this new birth take place. And she, she kind of looked around and said, like, here like <laughs> now and it was just this beautiful i mean i got to witness like a birth it was this that was birth awesome. that took place right in a just in a crowded room with people talking and just a, a normal place and yet this spiritual thing happened there's no formula but you can experience it and so if we have listeners who have not experienced that rebirth, like it is possible. All you do, actually, I'm not going to go, go there yet. I'm going to let our text give us a (laughs) little more insight into what does this look like? How is, how can this be? So Aaron, would you read nine through 14 for us? Yeah. So after hearing all this, Nicodemus says to him, how can these things be? Jesus (laughs) answered and said to him, are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? Truly, uh, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen, and you do not accept our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the son of man. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the son of man be lifted up. This portion is that portion where it's like, you know, a person could very easily choose to be offended by it, especially if you're Nicodemus, right? And then we, I talked about this with some of the actors who portrayed Nicodemus. How are you responding when I say this? And there was one man in particular who, when I would say it the first time, you know, if I told you earthly things you haven't believed, I thought you were the teacher of Israel, right? At first, he allowed himself to kind of be a little bristled by that. But I think it's very easy to see how uh, you could bristle being a teacher of Israel, having studied the Old Testament. None of what I'm saying should surprise you. The truth is there. He's communicated exactly what we need, and it's our responsibility to understand it. And Nicodemus hadn't understood it because he wasn't trying to understand what God wanted to say. Uh, It's like somebody asked Nicodemus, what does this passage mean to you? Uh, And man, that's dangerous. When people ask you that question, that's so dangerous. It doesn't matter what it means to me. The question is, what does it mean to God? What did God intend for it to mean? And this is what Jesus is saying here. Hey, it had a meaning. You should have understood this. And it's a weighty thing. James tells us that not everyone should be a teacher because Mm -hmm. the teachers are going to have a a greater responsibility. Uh, Nicodemus was definitely one of those guys. Um, do you think that there was kind of an edge to Jesus's voice when he says, you, you're the teacher of Israel? And yeah. yet, I mean, do you think there was, I mean, because it does sound kind of confrontational. Do you think there was mm-hmm. a confrontation there? I think that, uh, ooh, this is hard. This is probably one of the hardest things for me to do. Portraying Christ was, was choosing the right voice inflection. Sure. And there were times that Jesus had to say hard things. And I firmly believe that there, that love 
being kind, being gracious, being loving. And for those of you who aren't watching, I'm using those air quotes, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Being kind, gracious, and loving is not a tone of voice. It's a motivation. Mm -hmm. Okay. I'm speaking God's truth and God's love, Ephesians 4, 15. But loving doesn't mean that I have to talk to you like this and I lower my voice and <laughs> mm-hmm. I kind of sound sing. No, 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 no. Sometimes it is, it is hard truth. Yeah. Um, and it's, and it's said in a dramatic way. So for me personally, I didn't want it to come across to anybody in the audience as having, as, as being like, again, a jerk move, like, <laughs> come on, Nicodemus, like one in the world. But I, you know, I delivered it with, and you, the teacher of Israel do not understand these things. Like clearly you're, you you recognize that I'm, I'm asking this facetiously rhetorically, like you come on, man. Um, so yeah, I think that, uh, I think that sometimes we get the very wrong picture of Jesus. Yes. He did uh, and said amazingly sweet and tender things. Uh, but he also said very hard things. Just read some of the passages of him talking to the Pharisees. Yeah. Um, man, oh man, if if your pastor talked to you like that, you I, I cannot believe he, he, yeah. he that was sinful. How dare he talk to me like that? Um, well, if you're acting like a Pharisee, then that may be the best thing for your pastor to say to you or your counselor or a friend to say to you. And it doesn't mean that it's unloving. Uh, it just means that it's it's painful truth because potentially it is actually true. So that's a tough one. It is a tough one to answer that question for sure. But I do believe that there were times in his ministry when Jesus had to say hard things in hard ways. Mm, and Jesus is talking to a Pharisee here. Yes, he is. There is great potential for this man to be swept away in all mm-hmm. of the rule following and the the wrong presuppositions. Um, and he should have known. I think that Bible teachers today can neglect whole portions of the Bible. And there is mm. a rebuke from Jesus in mm-hmm. that. Like we do need to know our Bibles. We need to know yes. the whole counsel of God and not just camp out in certain sections, mm-hmm. you know, the parts that are easier to read and to uh, give away to others. But again, that's, I so appreciate your truth, love parent podcast and how much you marry love and truth, right? Those are together. We're not being unkind when we, when we talk about things that are true. Amen. And so what is this parallel between the cross and the snake on the pole from the story back, you know, when Moses, what, you know, what is this parallel that we're supposed to see here? Yeah. So the short of it was, and Nicodemus would have known this well, uh, as the children of Israel sinned against God. And the consequences were that God sent fiery, what called fiery serpents into the midst of the people. They were biting the people. Some were dying. Some were getting very sick. And uh, Moses beseeched God on behalf of the people that they not be completely wiped out. And it was God's plan the entire time to present them a way of escape from this, uh, this fiery torment. And, uh, and that it would be a picture of a coming day when he would do it for all mankind. And so he told Moses to make a brazen serpent and to wrap it around a pole and to put that pole up in the midst of the camp. And anyone who had been bitten or was dying uh, could just, if they could get, if they could go on their own two feet or have someone take them and they would look at that pole, they would be healed. They look at the snake. By the way, if you've ever wondered why uh, health organizations yeah. have a, a pole with a snake wrapped around it. That that's right? actually, it's actually a very biblical concept. Interesting. Um, very cool. Yeah. It's kind of cool. Um, but that's what happened. So the people you imagine you got bit, you get the searing pain, you recognize you're dying and you crawl, you run whatever to this pole and you look at it immediately you're healed. Another beautiful picture of the fact that you did, you did nothing really. You didn't heal yourself. God healed you in the way he just invited you to come. And that's what he does to all of us. He invites us to come. He's not going to force all of us physically 
physical birth was forced on us. Let's be honest. Right. <laughs> um, but this, this takes this born again idea into a different, <clears throat> a different lane. Um, it is a, a choice that we make mm-hmm. where we uh, accept an invitation to be born again. And so this is, I think, why Jesus in part is referencing this. He wanted to help Nicodemus to realize that there's, you do have the responsibility to look. If you refuse the second birth, it will not be forced upon you. Wow. That's so good. And so it's really good to have both of these images Mm. in our minds as we look at this truth, you know, the, the helpless baby who didn't choose to be born, um, that we can't, you know, we can't accomplish this, but then also the looking at the snake, you know, that is something that is our choice. Um, And so not something, you know, we can't save ourselves, but we can look to Jesus. And that's like, when I talked about that woman that I got to pray with, it's really just, it's, it's so simple. It's just looking to Jesus, knowing I'm going to die. Like these people who had been bitten by snakes, they're going to die. And there is no way that they can save themselves, but looking yeah. to Jesus, there it's is. It's what he said earlier. It's faith in what you know. Yes. You, you know, know that looking at the snake will heal you. Are you going to believe that? If you, I told you, so you obviously, you know, if you don't believe it, you're going to stay in your home and you're going to try to use whatever remedies and whatever techniques to save yourself. But if you believe what you know, what I told you, you're going to go look at the snake. Yeah. And, and that's I, the thing here. I'm thinking too, they were in the, you know, they were in the wilderness. They didn't have trees. So these snakes were probably on the ground and biting their ankles, you know? And so your natural instinct is to look down, look at the snake Mm. bite. Oh my gosh, it's getting red. It's getting swollen. But, you know, it takes faith to look away from that and look up to the the pole was looking up. So as we have you read these last, you know, let's have you back up and do 14 through 21. But I want to just have both of those images in mind as you read these words of Jesus. So the image of a rebirth and the image of wind blowing, we can't contain the wind. There is no formula to it, but then also the image of looking to this pole, uh, the sun that's lifted up. Go ahead and read those, Aaron. And believing what we know. Yeah. Yeah. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the son of man be lifted up so that whoever believes, whoever believes will in him have eternal life for God. So loved the world, that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send the son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. This is the judgment, that light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light, and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light, so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. Wow. So, what is surprising, astonishing in these verses? Absolutely everything. Every every (laughs) single one. Uh, The whole whole fact that God would have a plan of redemption for us is astonishing. How he chose to go about it is astonishing. I think for Nicodemus and really for us too, there's a lot of powerful stuff here. One is the fact that God himself um, took our place. Our sin was so terrible and so awful that God had to die to save us from it. When you sin against an infinite God, you owe an infinite debt. Mm-hmm. The only way that a finite person can pay an infinite debt 
is to either A, pay it for all eternity, as somebody would in, in hell. So hell will never come to an end. A finite person to pay an infinite debt will have to do it for all eternity. Or for an, a, an infinite person to pay the infinite debt on behalf of the finite person. And that's what Christ is offering here. God himself had to die to pay this penalty. It's huge. So by his death, we are offered life. It is just, wow, it's, it's so powerful. The, 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 the idea of God not sending the world, uh, sending the son into the world to judge the world, uh, I think uh, is the idea that he's, he's here. Is, this is a final judgment. This is the final passing of judgment that you are, you know, you're going to heaven, you're going to hell. You're going to heaven, you're going to hell. He didn't come to do that. He came to save all who would believe. I find now, that I find that astonishing. Yeah. You know, I cool. that, there's just just that he did not come to judge, right? He came, he's going to. Yes. There will be a day that the Son of Man will se- separate the goats from the sheep, and 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 he himself will send people to hell. But that's not why he came the first time. He yeah. came the first time to offer to everyone the the free gift of salvation. Yeah, I just heard. I think it was Ray Ortland um, on a podcast, and he was saying that. God is never provoked to love. He always loves. Mm-hmm. He's provoked to anger. It, mm. it requires, you know, something on our part to provoke his anger. He's bent toward love and he will be angry. He will. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, I just, I think that's such a beautiful picture. God did not send his son. That was not his first intention to come and judge and you know, clean up this mess that we've made. He came that we might be saved. And, and in the same way that, you know, the judgment was already in play when the people were bitten by the snakes, like they already were sick. It, Jesus, you know, Jesus didn't come to bite them, right? That's, <laughs> yeah, exactly. that's, that's the job of the, you know, that's what sin has done. Sin. The is, serpent wasn't there to make things worse. The, the, right. the bronze serpent. Yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. it wasn't. Um, it, he came, that he came that he might be lifted up and that he might take sin upon himself and that we could be free of this judgment, that it's already mm-hmm. in play. And if we do nothing, if we, if there's no response, then the judgment will play out. And mm-hmm. um, so uh, I saw this little comic once and maybe, I don't know how you do this. Maybe you can share the image with I your, will uh, definitely you know, share this yeah, image. Okay, so it's so great. <laughs> I, I saw this little comic. It was a one box little comment and there were two little booths set up. One of the booths said John 316 over it. And there were like, as a person sitting at the booth and there was a whole long line of people queued up at that booth, exactly as you, you would hope like, yay, let's, let's get saved. And then there was the booth next to it. Uh, the, the little sign said, John three sixteen through 21. And there was nobody queued up at that booth. <laughs> and there was, there was nothing else, nothing else written, no explanation given. That was just it. But when you go in, you read John three sixteen for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Yes, of course. Who wouldn't want that, right? But verses 20 and 21 talks about the fact that people who hate the light are evil people. They don't come to the light because they're afraid that their deeds will be exposed. And he says, but he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as being wrought in God. So we see here at the end of this last part of the conversation with Nicodemus, Jesus is saying that this new birth is going to do something in you. It's not just like you can stay the way you are and here's a contract, here's a ticket so that when you come to the end of your life, you can get into heaven, right? You've been born of the spirit. Uh, now, you know, you'll just stay a baby the rest of your life. No, this 
God will take us where we are, but he never leaves us where we are. There is so desperately important for us to recognize that if I, a finite human being, indwelt by the Holy Spirit, how on earth could I not be changed by that? How could I continue in my sinful, evil, dark ways when I have the light living inside of me? The reality is all throughout scripture is that I am going to be changed. We call it sanctification. That moment of salvation, justification. The process of salvation, sanctification. And the end of salvation, glorification, where we are completely freed from sin, completely in the light with God for all eternity. So I think that's a really powerful concept that's important. It was important for Nicodemus. And it's important for us. And I think specifically it was important for Nicodemus because he was being shown that his righteousness was as filthy rags. Mm -hmm. He was already told, live as you want. You're never going to see the kingdom. Not going to happen. You need this other thing that you don't have. Mm -hmm. And that when you do have it, you are going to grow in a way because right now your deeds are evil. You not being born again, the best you've got is evil. Mm -hmm. And by being born again, uh, the Messiah's blood is going to cover your transgression. But then also, Practically, there's going to be this growth from day to day, from year to year, as we're conformed into the image of Christ. Yes. And, and the image of the baby being born. You know, we don't yep. expect a baby to just be born and do nothing. Like they're, they, <laughs> they need to live. The baby needs to live, right? And yep. grow and eat and grow and right. learn. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I hope you'll take some time now and open your Bible to John chapter 3. Uh, look at this story, this true story of Nicodemus, this conversation that Jesus had, and pay special attention to the two metaphors that Jesus offered Nicodemus. Have you been born again? This picture of a, a helpless baby emphasizes that you can't save yourself. But the picture of the snake on a pole, that emphasizes that you are responsible. So have you lifted your eyes to Jesus? Have you trusted him to save you from death? If you have more questions about this, I would love to connect with you. Please don't hesitate to reach out. Thanks so much for joining me for another episode of Live Like It's True. Don't forget to check our show notes for a link to Aaron Brewster's podcast, Truth Love Parent, and grab your free Bible readings and discussion guide for season one. Thanks so much to my son, Cade Popkin, for providing our music today. And leave your review at Apple Podcasts for a chance to win a free Live Like It's True t-shirt. And now it's time to go live like this story is true.